The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The previous chapter opens with Gyrios waking from a curious dream in which he speaks with a pair of birds. The dream turns out to be prophetic and marks a new stage in the cleric's divine powers. He is now able to communicate with animals. While Gyrios explores this new ability, Umura and Eridine are on their road to Wilmington. Their mission is still a mystery, but whatever it is, it will take them all the way to Umura's homeland of Zisha. Also, this episode is a level-up episode for our thief. Her roles are a little less than spectacular, but she does enjoy some modest improvement to her abilities. Back in Thangar, Gyrios and Harl attend a meeting with Grumblebelly and Roland Daz. The cleric's avian friends have discovered and reported the dragon's whereabouts. It comes as no surprise to anyone that the worm has made a home in the ruins of the Agogen atop the Cloudspur. But now that they know where it is for sure, they can start to formulate a plan of attack. Using Grumblebelly's maps, they decide to enter through the place where the Fire River exits the mountain. Switching back to the women, the episode concludes with Eridine's memory of a certain caper she pulled with her former lover, Matchy Swim. Chapter 65 Part 1 Day 81 Evening The visions she received through her homunculi were imperfect, as they were malformed, so their senses were twisted and blurred. Brissienne and Uxon had made them when she was but a young woman, overly ambitious and lacking adequate skill and patience. Her own blood she had given to them, one pint each. The process had been arduous, expensive, and extremely painful. She had needed a month to recover, but when she was finished, she had a trio of minions to be her eyes and ears in places where she was not. It was disorienting at first, all of those sounds and noises bombarding her consciousness at the same time, but by and by, she had learned how to ignore them or focus on one or the other at will. She could also control their actions, sending her homunculi anywhere she pleased, to spy, to eavesdrop. To no small degree, they were responsible for the power and control she wielded over others today. Now, many years after fabricating the creatures, she barely even noticed the telepathic link. She was completely accustomed to having eyes and ears in three other places at once. The homunculi, she had named them Nettlewort, Thistle, and Milkweed, did not keep company with each other. 
Nettlewart liked to skulk around the spire-topped tower at the corner of the estate. Thistle preferred the scullery, ever watching the Anuxon's servants, who of course hated the misshapen thing that leered at them from morning to night. Milkweed could always be found outside the mortuary, perched atop the roof like a poorly made gargoyle. It was just as the sun was setting when Brissian's attention was drawn to Milkweed's vision. A lone cloaked figure was approaching the mausoleum. She straightened in her chair and looked up from the tome she was reading. There should not have been anyone near the mausoleum. Was this an intruder from a rival house? She snapped the heavy book shut and stood up. The homunculus's vision showed that the figure's hood was drawn over their head and Brissian could not see their face, but the person was slight, most likely a woman. Whoever this person was, they wouldn't be able to get much further. The doors to the mausoleum were magically sealed. They would only open to a member of the Anuxan family, and none of her family members were there. Her husband had taken ill at supper and retired early. As for Egoan and Maris, they were in the solar playing nine men's Morris and drinking brandy as they did every evening after their meal. She focused her attention back to Milkweed's vision and watched amazed as the figure held up a glowing hand to the door and it swung open. Brissienne's eyes went wide and suddenly her pulse was racing. Without delay, she snatched her magical staff from its holder and raced through the estate, first down one hall and then the next. There was no time to summon Egoin and Maris. The solar was too far away. She would take care of this threat herself. She adjusted her grip on her staff and felt its cold energies seep into her hand. Exiting the castle proper, she reached out to Milkweed once again. The homunculus had followed the intruder into the mausoleum. She commanded it to withdraw and hide outside, and as the strange deformed little creature backed out of the Anuxan's House of the Dead, she rounded the corner and saw its diminutive and doughy form. It saw her too, and the blind seeming hollows of its eyes looked down in deference. The homunculus skulked away, while Brissienne, paying it no mind, strode confidently through the open doors. Inside the mausoleum it was dark, except with the slanting light from the setting sun painted an orange wedge on the flagstone floor. As always, the place smelled of dust, dust and the faint lingering smell of embalming agent. To either side of her were the undisturbed resting places of her father and mother, Hiron and Uxon to the left, Raelion and Uxon to the right. Both were in a seated position, wearing silver-trimmed robes of white and a nimbus of cobwebs. Their silver orb eyeballs stared across the dark space at one another, oblivious to all else. On Hiron's lap was Wyvern's kiss. Even in the dim light, its giant ruby twinkled with red fire. At the far end of the room, just sixty feet away, was the intruder. The light did not extend far enough into the space to show any details. They were just a shadow, kneeling at the altar of Ahea. The figure's pose and position gave Brissienne pause, and she lowered her staff of winter storms. She strode forward until she was midway across the floor. In a single gesture, she commanded the doors to close behind her and they obeyed, grinding slowly shut. At the same time, she summoned light into the room with a simple spell, and a white glow faded into being until the room was as bright as daylight. The stranger did not move, made no effort to hide, not even to acknowledge her presence. She wore a hooded cloak, but Brissienne could see the numerous tattoos on her arms and legs where the cloak did not cover them. This was a magic user then, and clearly formidable. The evidence was literally written on her body. Brissienne felt a moment of hesitation, but she mastered the feeling and called out, You are trespassing in the house of Anuxen. Show yourself. 
The stranger slowly rose to her feet and turned around, removing her hood. Brisiana Nuxon found herself looking into the eyes of her only daughter. Hello, mother. I've returned. Between the Lines In this section of Between the Lines, I'm going to cover three very different topics, so forgive me if it comes across as a little disjointed. Let's begin with that last scene. The homunculi I described probably didn't match your idea of that creature. I admit it, I've gone and done it again. Yet another homebrew monster mod. I almost went with the homunculus as described in the monster manual, but ultimately decided against it because it didn't quite fit the way I wanted it to. I loved the idea of a wizard servant that was not a familiar, but a construct made from the caster's own blood, but I didn't want my homunculi to have any sort of combat ability. I also wanted to have several of them. Most of all, I wanted them to be imperfect beings that Brisienne had created before she was really ready. As long as I was making these changes, I figured I should go all in and change their appearance too. I even removed their wings. The way I imagine them is as little androgynous humanoids that appear to be made of dough. They wouldn't have defined features, no fingers or toes, no hair, no sensory organs, just little impressions or dimples where ears or eyes would be. I fell in love with the idea for these misshapen and grotesque creatures right away, and eventually decided to use them instead. I'll write up a description and post it to the blog shortly. Okay, with that out of the way, let's check in with Gyrios and Harl and see what they are up to. For the duration of this episode, while Eredin and Umura are off on an adventure, they're keeping busy and spending time as usefully as they can. Gyrios will be in prayer, communicating with his network of birds, tending to the wounded, and helping with the plans to eventually rebuild Thangar above the surface, while making an effort to improve life below the surface for now. Harl will help with these rebuilding projects, too. Additionally, every day, he and Roland Daz spar with one another. Harl wins most of these bouts, but not all of them, and over time the two dwarves begin to form a bond of mutual respect. By their fifth practice fight, Roland Daz no longer calls his opponent Chief Stonecarver. Now he calls him Harl, as a friend would do. Harl, for his part, has taken to calling Roland Daz simply Daz, and the other dwarf seems not to mind at all. There's a decision to make where Gyrios and Harl are concerned. I haven't done this since episodes 6 and 7, when a badly wounded Kagan sat out the exploration of Raffenfell's ruined tower laboratory, but I think I need to do it here. Harl and Gyrios will not get the usual experience points for surviving this episode. They aren't in danger, and they aren't practicing their craft in a meaningful way. Therefore, their progress to the next level will be delayed by one episode. Those are the rules I established early on, so those are the rules I'm going to use. Finally, I need to decide what Nera Numenax is doing over this period of time. She won't remain idle for long. It has been ten days since she attacked Thangar, and the flames and fury have satisfied her bloodlust for now, but the dragon is a thing of seething hatred. In four days, she will take Wang again. At first, she'll return to Thangar to make sure the pathetic dwarves haven't tried to crawl out of their holes and rebuild. If they have, she'll make them pay for daring to get off their knees she'll push them right back into the dirt where they belong. She'll turn their mountainside into a graveyard.
Would you like to know more about some of the most influential role-playing games out there? Roll to Save is a podcast dedicated to the history of RPGs and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts from and at rolltosave.blog. We take a long hard look at the origins of some of the biggest games and their often turbulent histories. Roll to Save also looks at how modern games have been shaped by the games that came before. So, if you fancy delving into the fascinating history of role-playing games, visit rolltosave.blog or search for Roll to Save on your podcast directory of choice. You can also contact us at at SavePodcast on Twitter. Join us on a trip down memory lane. You might be surprised at what you learn. Get ready to go beyond with Beyond the Hypertrench from Hodag RPG. The lightest, most versatile force in tabletop gaming. Thrill as Beyond delivers the biggest heroes and villains straight to your gaming table. All with the easiest rules to learn ever with lightning fast rulings focused play. Beyond brings you the real role play action of the Liberators Fight for Freedom, the seedy underworld of space gangsters, and the space fantasy action of the powerful mystical Oath Keepers. When you want to go beyond big thrills, beyond quick rules, and beyond nostalgic toy box style adventure, go beyond the Hyper Trench. Coming to your Galaxy Trench Tuesday, 2-22-22. Game available at hodagrpg.itch.io. Dice not included. Now optimized for solo or group play. Only from Hodag RPG. Chapter 65, Part 2, Day 81, Evening Umora stood face to face with her mother. In her eyes she saw a mixture of shock and something else, a shade of fear. The elder woman took an involuntary step back, then, composing herself, addressed her daughter with regal formality. Welcome home, child. You have certainly changed. She took in Umora's numerous tattoos none of which were there the last time she had seen her daughter. She also noticed the clinging white dress under the robe. And I see you bring good news. Umora smiled wanly. Yes, he chose me from all of the petitioners. Now Brissian smiled, and it was a genuine smile. By finding favor with the mighty Gwilgodin, you have added honor to our family name. Your family name, Umora corrected archly. I am no longer an Anuxon. Brissian maintained her smile, but her voice was cold. Quite right. When will the marriage take place? In two weeks' time. So soon? Then you'll not be staying long? Umura knew that her lie would please her mother. She also knew that she wouldn't want her around any longer than was strictly necessary. There would be no love lost when Umura ostensibly left the family. Young women in Zaysha were, by and large, burdens on their families, and of little use until they secured an advantageous marriage. No. My master wishes me to return with the dowry as soon as I am able, tonight by his instruction. But it is late, and I would see my old chambers if it pleases you, mother. Perhaps you should return tonight and not begin your marriage with disobedience, suggested Brucienne. Umura waved her hand and strode toward the mausoleum doors. They ground open upon her command, and Brucienne's magical spell of light spilled out into the twilight darkened yard. A crescent moon hung in the sky, ivory white against the blackness of coming night. It is late, mother. Gwilgodan is strict, certainly, but he is not a cruel man. 
he would permit me this small indulgence. Well, he's your husband, conceded her mother. Let us go inside. She walked briskly so that her daughter would be forced to follow her instead of walking by her side. Her weird homunculus, emerging from the shadows of the mausoleum wall, watched them go. Over her shoulder, Brissian inquired, Umura, why did you not rise to greet me when I entered? And why were you so slow to respond when I called out? I was in the middle of prayer, mother. I was asking Ahea to bless my nuptials, and I thought it would bring misfortune to stop in the middle. I see. Well, I shall bring you to your old room and leave you to further reflections. Thank you, mother, replied Umora, robotically. Then she added, And along the way, shall we discuss an appropriate dowry? As she was walking behind her, Umora did not see her mother scowl. All the same, she knew it was there. As for herself, she could not suppress a smile. Umura's dowry will include one magical item, for sure, plus an amount of money to be determined at random. I'm going to make a reaction check and apply Umura's minus one charisma penalty to the result. Then, I'll multiply that number by 50. That will be the amount of the dowry in gold pieces. Regardless of the figure, I'm also going to include a scroll containing a third-level spell to be determined at random. The bad result in the dice, say, from two to four, will indicate a decision by Brissienne to deliver the dowry herself at a later date meaning Umura would leave empty-handed. Now I'm imagining a befuddled Gwilgodan receiving a very unexpected and strange visit sometime in the future. For fun, let's determine which spell will be on that scroll, just so we have a better idea of what's to be lost if the reaction roll goes badly. For this, we'll need a d12 and the chart found in the expert rulebook. I'm going to use the result indicated by the die, even if it's a spell Umura already knows. Here's the roll. An 11. What's that? Oh, cool. It's a scroll of protection from normal missiles. Now I very much care how this next roll will go. 2d6 minus 1 for the reaction roll. Here goes. An 8 minus 1 is 7. So the dowry entrusted to Amur's care is 350 gold pieces, plus the scroll. Hey, that's not bad. Not too bad at all. The next day, Umura leaves Castle Anuxon with a chest of gold and the scroll, but almost nothing by way of a send-off. Her father is too ill, apparently, to see her at all. Her mother makes an excuse and sends her goodbyes through the serving staff. She does provide her driver and carriage, however, which takes Umura back to the inn where Eridine, posing as Umura's handmaiden, is waiting. The long road back to Wilmington takes six full days, traveling with the merchant's convoy. This is something Eridine managed to arrange earlier that morning for the reasonable fee of six gold pieces for the both of them. During the long trip, Umura has ample time to reflect both on her crime and on herself. Of the crime, she does feel a little guilty, but more for betraying the memory of her grandfather than for stealing from her own family. As far as she's concerned, her mother, father, and her cousins can all rot. Of herself, she realizes, after impersonating her own former attitude, how much she has changed. That imperious and sour person is almost a stranger now. Almost. She suddenly realizes that she owes Gyrios an apology for the way she berated him at the mass funeral. She makes up her mind to ask his forgiveness when she sees him again in a few days. When they reach Wilmington, Umura celebrates the success of their mission by renting the most expensive room in the inn. The fee is a staggering 20 gold pieces, but Umura pays it without hesitation, more than happy to waste her mother's wealth on the indulgence. 
she further celebrates by attempting to copy her new spell scroll into her own book. She'll need to roll her intelligence or under on a d20 to succeed. With an 18 intelligence, it's likely she will. Okay, here's the roll. A 19. She has failed to understand the spell well enough to transcribe it. She'll have to wait until level 7 to try again. Bad luck, Umura. That is potentially not the last of the bad luck. You might remember that when the women entered Wilmington, I rolled a d6 to see if anyone who might report to Maynard Magari would notice their presence. Well, I need to roll again as they move through the city the second time. Let's get a d6. Okay, a one on the die means they are spotted. I've got a three. They're safe. The next night, the camp roadside as they head on the way north. During the afternoon of the next day, as they walk south towards the mountains, Eridine suddenly stops and puts a flat hand to her forehead, shading her eyes. She says she can see a column of smoke in the distance. Umura can't see it, and still can't see it for the next hour. But slowly it materializes, and by late afternoon on day 88, they can both plainly see an oily black ribbon reaching from hills to sky. By evening, they know what caused it. Sechoros has been burned to the ground, completely razed. There is nothing left but crumbling blackened stumps of timber and drifts of ash that make the summer's eve look like the dead of winter. Chapter 65, Part 3, Day 89, Night, Party Status, Harl, 34 of 34 hit points, Gyrios, 37 of 37, Eridine, 20 of 20, Umura, 25 of 25, Spells Available, Umura has memorized, Hold Portal, Charm Person, Levitate, Knock, Lightning Bolt, and Water Breathing. Gyrios has prayed for, Cure Light Wounds times two, Resist Fire, Speak with Animals, Striking, and Create Water. So you asked for Wyvern's kiss as a part of your dowry, and your mother could not refuse. Is that how you did it? Harl was staring into his palm where Gyrios had placed a ruby the size of an acorn after Umura had handed it to him. Oh, no, replied Umura. She would never part with it willingly. Never. No, we stole it. To Gyrios, the gem had looked identical to the one the women had taken from Harl's bag before they left. Harl now held the ruby up to look at it in the glow of the Branabil lamp. He rotated it slowly and gave a low whistle. What a marvel. It is truly flawless. I'm still a little unclear on exactly how you accomplished this, muttered Gyrios, scratching his bald scalp. Umora looked at the cleric with affection and gratitude. When she privately asked his forgiveness upon their return, Gyrios had given it graciously and without hesitation or condition. He truly was a good person, she realized. A better person than she was. Oh, well, I'll let Eridine explain. It was her plan, after all. Eight days ago, as Eridine and Umura neared the Anuxan estate, the young rogue fished a glass vial from her belt pouch and twisted off the stopper. Tentatively, she sniffed it. 
the liquid inside had a mild minty scent, unexpectedly pleasant. Turning to Umura, with a quick grin and a shrug, she swallowed the contents in a single gulp. Umura's eyebrows shot up immediately. It works, she exclaimed. You've completely vanished. How do you feel? Eridine replied that she felt the same as before. When Umura asked if she could see her own arms, hands, and legs, Eridine replied that she could. The only difference was a sense of fresh exhilaration that washed over her whole body. It made her feel clean, buoyant, light as a feather, actually. She accompanied Umura as the sorceress veered left, away from Castle Anuxon, a large multi-storied stonework structure boasting a spire-topped tower in the rear. Ahead was their destination, the mausoleum. That building was also made of thick stone blocks. It was only a dozen feet tall, windowless, long, and rectangular, with a colonnade running the length of each side. At each front corner stood a man-sized statue of a blackbird. The large stone double doors were decorated with a frieze depicting a pair of wyverns locked in battle with each other. When they reached them, Umura waved a hand in the air, her fingers glowing. Then, with a grating sound, the doors slowly parted like they'd been pushed open from within. Umora had warned her that they were probably being watched from the moment they entered the property. Eridine noticed, but tried to refrain from looking at the misshapen little creature following them at a distance. As they had agreed, once inside the mausoleum, they split up. Eridine stayed near the entrance, turning left and standing before the preserved remains of Umora's grandfather. If the sorceress hadn't warned her about his silver eyes, she might have let out a scream. She almost did anyway. It was extremely unsettling but Eridine summoned her courage and went to work on the rod, Wyvern's Kiss. It sat in the dead wizard's lap, just as Umura said it would. Using her dagger, she started to pry back the tiny golden teeth that held the tremendous ruby in place. Meanwhile, Umura walked all the way to the end of the mausoleum and knelt down to pray at an ornate altar made of dark wood and decorated in gold leaf. Despite being invisible, Eridine's heart almost stopped when the matriarch of House Anuxon entered the mausoleum. Did the woman's stride falter as she passed by? Eridine imagined it had. How on Merith did she get here so quickly? It had only been a few minutes since the rogue had gone to work, prying free the perfect ruby and replacing it with the flawed one. She was just securing the decoy gem in the wyvern's mouth, using the flat of her dagger blade to bend the gold teeth back into place when Umura's mother showed up. A chill passed through Eridine's body as she passed by. It was almost as if a wintry aura surrounded the woman. Just another trick of her imagination, she told herself. When Umura's mother was midway across the hall, she raised a hand, commanding the mausoleum doors to close. They responded to her command immediately, and this was Eridine's cue. Quick as a cat, she stole through the doors with the matriarch's light spell blooming behind her. Of course, Eridine cast no shadow, and whatever little sound she might have made was easily covered by the grinding noise of stone on stone. Once clear of the place, remembering the little spies she had seen earlier, Eridine remained quiet and invisible as she veered off in the direction she felt put the most distance between her and the creature. From there, it was an easy matter to escape the Anuxon estate unnoticed. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are now several ways to do so. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. 
You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, available for buck fifty on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has done any of the above. I'd like to read a review from iTunes today. This one was posted by Shikaka67. Shikaka writes, What an amazing story. The characters are portrayed so well, and the description of the gaming mechanics is such fun. I hope this goes on forever, and if there was ever a graphic novel or a book of these adventures, I'd definitely be buying them up. Very kind of you to write that, Shikaka67. Thank you so much. I think Tale of the Manticore might go on for some time. You know, I'm two years in, and I feel that there is a lot more story to tell. I've already got scraps of ideas orbiting my brain for season two. I think an EPUB will also happen sometime in the not-too-distant future. Definitely not until season one wraps, but maybe if I can find the time between seasons, I can put that together. Once again, thanks so much for taking the time to write that review, Shikaka67. Let's talk about this episode's voice talent. Playing Brissienne Anuxon, I'm happy to introduce Wowzers. Find her on Twitter at Wowzers. She spells it V-V-O-W-Z-E-R-Z. Thanks for lending me your talent, Wowzers. I really appreciate it. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, my Twitter handle is at ManticoreTail. I'm on Instagram too, at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post art, character sheets, maps, and other bits and pieces. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Welcome to the podcast plug. It is I, Grognard the Young, the Young Grognard. I present to you, with the help of my friends, the Young, Y-U-N-G, Grognard Podcast. After being a dungeon master for about 15 years, I set out to create a podcast that I could grow with both as a gamer and as a creator. This podcast has a little of everything related to the hobby. Homebrew and DMing tips, discussions with other gamers about contentious topics within the hobby, and even a few actual plays across different editions and variations of the game. There's always something new to try on the show, so it is certain to evolve over time. You'll soon find we don't take things too seriously on the show, but we always care about what the listener has to say and the product we provide. So rest assured, it will be a show like no other, and we hope you enjoy the Young, Y-U-N-G, Grognard Podcast. Thank you.